there's a term you're going to need to know. The doctrine of divine concurrence. And the doctrine of divine concurrence describes the fact that God works through free human actions. He even ordains free human actions to accomplish his will and his actions. That is, without violating our free will or without violating our responsibility for what we do, God works in it, God works through it to accomplish what he wants done. So often, you know, the easiest way this plays out is if God wants something done, he gives a commandment, and then we follow his command. And by following what he says, he gets the thing done that he wants done. That's not always how it works. Even in our rebellion, when we sin against God, it doesn't somehow thwart his ultimate plan, but rather he uses that sin. He uses our free even evil actions to accomplish his big purposes that he wants done. So if you ever look at a grandfather clock or like a skeleton watch where you can see the inner workings of the clocks, the gears, the springs, whatever mechanisms go into a clock, you know, some of the wheels are spinning in the right direction at the right speed, and you're like, oh, of course that's keeping time. Others are spinning what would seem to be too fast or too slow. Some gears are even going in the opposite direction. You're like, how does that work to keep time? But, you know, when you look at the clock as a whole, everything, whether it's the right speed, the wrong speed, the right direction, the wrong direction, it all works together in perfect harmony to keep perfect time. Likewise, in our obedience, in our rebellion, God works. He even intends all things to work together to carry out his plan. It's divine concurrence that there are two wills working. We have our free human will. We do what we want, and yet our doing and our wanting is under the sovereign will of God who ordains everything that comes to pass. So in ministry— this looks like 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. As each, of us has, as each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, in ministry, you speak, but you speak God's words. You serve, but you serve in God's strength. It, it's these two factors working at the same time. Paul was able to say about his ministry in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. Paul worked hard. It was Paul's sweat and Paul's blood that was poured out on the mission field. But it was God's grace that was working to supply what he needed. It's divine concurrence. Or perhaps most famously, you have that passage at the end of Joseph's story in uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good which is to say God used the free evil intentions of selling his, their brother into slavery to ultimately accomplish his purpose of saving the nation of Israel. God's hidden hand of providence is always at work in good and in evil, in our sweat and obedience and in our sin, through his good 
and kind and pleasant or through his good and bitter providence. And this is unbelievably relevant for the book of Ruth because it means if Ruth and Naomi are going to experience God's kindness in their lives, then God's not just going to drop a box of kindness from heaven for them to open and they somehow get to experience it. No, they're going to experience God's loving kindness through God's people. There's two wills at work here. So Ruth, too, shows us with vivid clarity that God works his kindness through our kindness. And that's going to be our theme this morning. It's not difficult. God works his kindness through our kindness. And so before I read chapter 2, a chapter I'm calling Reaping, I'll, I'll catch you up with a 60-second review of chapter 1. Uh, we called it Returning. It focused on this idea that God in his loving kindness calls people from the far country, those who have fl fleed from him, back to his place of blessing. So uh, in the time of the judges, when there's no king in Israel, you had this man, Elimelech, he moved his family to God-hating Moab to avoid a famine. Um, while he was in Moab, Elimelech died. So Naomi, his wife, and his two sons lived there. Uh, the sons got married to Moabite women, something you should never do. Um, and the sons die. So Naomi is left in a God-hating enemy land with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. One day, as they're in the field, they hear that God has visited Bethlehem. He's provided food for them. And so Naomi decides, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, even though I've forsaken it a decade ago. But knowing how God has treated her bitterly all her life through famine, through losing her husband, through losing her sons, she tells her daughter-in-laws, you know what, stay here. Stay in Moab. Go back to your families. Go back to your gods. Don't come with me. Because she knows how they'll be received in Bethlehem. Or maybe how they won't be received in Bethlehem. They'd be a blight on her character. Uh, I'm, I'm that mother-in-law who has Moabite daughters-in-law. The, you know, same Moab that sent Balaam to curse us same Moab that's constantly been our enemies. King Eglon for 18 years in this season of Judges has been harassing us. And so she says, go back to your parents' house. And one daughter-in-law does, but not Ruth. No, Ruth converts to Judaism. She wants to be part of God's people. She says, your God will be my God and your people my people. And she returns to Bethlehem with Naomi. And when they get to Bethlehem, She's utterly ignored. She's a Moabite. Nobody cares about Ruth. Rather, they're just shocked that Naomi's home after 10 years in God-hating Moab. She tells them, you know, I went away full. Husband, two sons, beautiful family. There was food out there. And God's brought me back empty. But then the, the, the narrator gives us a glimmer of hope. He says, but it was the beginning of the barley harvest. And so chapter 1 ends with us asking a ton of questions. At least I hope you've been asking a ton of questions about the book of Ruth this week, such as, you know, will God's bitter providence ever end towards Naomi and Ruth? Will it ever turn to sweet providence instead? And will, will, Naomi, or will Ruth be rejected in Bethlehem? I mean, God has accepted her, but will his people accept her? 
what's going to happen to these widows? Will they be cared for? Will they starve? Will they ever find someone to take care of them? And, I mean, what's the point of coming back home in the first place? We have the book of Judges that tells us of the nation. Do these two widows really actually matter for anything? Or are we just wasting pages in the Bible to deal with two unimportant widows? And in chapter 2, we get the answers to some of those questions as we see that God works his kindness through our kindness. Let me read uh, Ruth chapter 2 here. It's the whole chapter. It's a, it's a longer text, so stay with me. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's a long chapter. We'll, we'll do this in three parts. We'll talk the hope of kindness, the experience of kindness in the field and at the table, and then the report of kindness. If you grabbed an outline on the Balkan Center, that's all listed along with most of my cross-references. I've learned the danger of printing on Thursday when you don't preach until Sunday. <laughs> so let, let's start with scene one, the, the hope of kindness. So if you know this, right, this chapter, it starts with this weird little introduction of a mysterious man, Boaz, in verse 1, but we don't actually meet him until verse 4. And verse 1 tells us exactly three things that we need to know about Boaz. Number one, he's a friend, maybe a relative, the translation's tricky there, but he's, he's a friend of Naomi's late husband. Number two, he's a worthy man, meaning he's wealthy, he's influential, he's righteous. And number three, not only is he a friend of Elimelech, but he's in the clan of Elimelech. A clan, it's, it's going to be smaller than your tribe. You know, the 12 tribes of Israel, it's smaller than your tribe, but it's bigger than your extended family. Uh, it, it's one of the more important divisions of, of Hebrew society. And him being mentioned in verse 1 should just start the chapter with your eyebrows raising, right? What? What, is, what does this have to do with anything? But facts one and three say that maybe this is a man who has responsibilities to take care of Ruth and Naomi. In fact, two, the fact that he is worthy says maybe he has the character and the abilities to actually carry out his job. We have a hint that maybe God's bitter providence is ending on Naomi's life. But, but we have to, <coughs> you know, wait and see until the end of the chapter. But with verse 2, we jump back into the action, right? Naomi says, I'm sorry, Ruth says, I'm going to go out in the fields. I'm going to get us something to eat. Which was a risky move in the time of the judges, if you're familiar with that dark, dark time of Israel's history, right? It's especially risky for a woman. It's especially risky for a Moabite. It's especially risky for a widow with no family to protect her or more likely no family to avenge her if something happens. But she's got to eat, so she, she takes this risk. And she expects God's people to act like God's people. Another risky bet during the time of the judges, right? Because she's going to glean, which basically meant she's going to go scavenge for food in the fields with harvesters in it. Um, the way I understand it, right, when the fields are ready to be harvested with barley or wheat or whatever grain we're, we're going, the team of men goes out, they have a sickle in their one hand, and they chop the wheat, and then they bundle it up under their other arm, and they carry it until their arm is full. And then when they can't carry any more of the grain, they drop that bundle on the ground, 
And that's when a team of women come behind them and they take the strings and they tie up the bundles of grain and they throw it in the cart to go back to the threshing floor or wherever to get processed. That's how the harvesting industry worked at that time. So you have the men up front and then the women. And behind the women, you'd have the gleaners. Um, because the law of Moses said that in order to care for widows, for orphans, for foreigners, for impoverished, when you harvest a field, you don't harvest all the way up to the edge of your property. You leave some grain for them to pick, to eat. And if you drop some barley, either the men from, you know, their arm loads or the women when they're tying it up, you don't go back and clean up your mess off the ground. You just leave it so that the poor, the widows, the impoverished, they can come and pick it up and eat it. So, so in gleaning, you're not going to make a living. You're, you're not going to get out of poverty from it. But you can survive hand-to-mouth by gleaning in the fields, right? It, it, it's kind of like collecting pop cans from a public park. You're, you're never going to get out of poverty, but you can survive the night by doing it. And so if God's people <coughs> are going to act like God's people, then they're going to let Ruth glean in the fields. But in verse 2, there's this... this this phrase here it says uh, let me glean after him in whose sight I shall find favor which seems to be saying maybe we're not expecting God's people to act like God's people in this time of history right she can't just show up in any random field and start gleaning it seems because there's greedy landowners who want all of their profits there's workers with harvesting quotas that better be meeting them i mean there's israel patriots out there who would love to boast about hurting or even killing a moabite there's real dangers out there but verse 3 says she goes into the farmland she comes to a random field just happens to come it says and it's belonging to her mysterious friend, Boaz. And she starts reaping. The, the reapers and the foremen are fine with her being there. It didn't hurt their bottom line. But when Boaz shows up, things could go sideways quickly. So Ruth surely wants, how long do I get to glean? How long do I get to, to collect grain? And of course, the question doesn't last long. Verse 4, Boaz shows up. Which, you know, the language is, and lo and behold, Boaz came back from Bethlehem. It's almost like there's a sovereign God directing everything in the book of Ruth. And in verse 5, Boaz greets the workers. He comes into the field. He says, Jehovah be with you. And they respond, Jehovah bless you. Which tells you about everything you need to know about Boaz, right? He is a God-saturated man. His first words in the book are, God bless you. Instead of saying, hi, how are the crops today? He's not interested in the crops. He's interested in blessing them in a covenant God's name. And his workers respond the same. Ruth 2 is not about how to be a Christian boss, but I wonder do you freely and lavishly bless those under your authority? with blessings of your covenant God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's employees or contractors or clients or kids, do you freely pour out blessings in the name of Jesus Christ? Or do you shy back from that because maybe the way you treat those under your authority would, be, would bring reproach upon the name of your covenant God? 
Boaz is one who is glad to speak of his God, which gives us hope that maybe the Lord's kindness will flow through him. And so he looks out at the fields, and he says to his foreman, who's that girl? What, what's she doing? Who's, who's she belong to? And he says, well, it's the Moabite, the one who came back from Moab. When Ruth was in Moab, she came back from Moab. We, we get it. She's a Moabite. She is not welcome here. But she said, let me glean, and she's been gleaning all day from morning until afternoon, whatever time this is. It's all day. It's worth mentioning, except for a small little break. I mean, what an example of industriousness that Ruth is. She, Naomi has experienced God's kindness through Ruth, right? God works his kindness through our kindness. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, here's your fun fact for the day. The, the order of the books is different than in our English Bible. Ruth, in the Hebrew Bible, is considered one of the writings, like Psalms or Proverbs, and not history, like Judges and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. So if you're, you know, the original Jewish audience here, you finish the book of Proverbs. You read Proverbs 31 about the worthy, godly woman who loves her family and doesn't fear the future but trusts God and gets to work. And then you turn the page and you start the book of Ruth, and you see Ruth out doing exactly that in Boaz's field. My, Naomi is experiencing God's kindness through the worthy woman Ruth's kindness. Those around her see her as absolutely nothing. She's a Moabite widow. But God presents her as this exemplary woman of virtue and valor, an excellent wife. Who can find? She is far more precious than gold and jewels, Proverbs 31.10 says. But does Boaz see that value? Does she find favor in his eyes? The second section of her text here puts those questions to rest quickly. I mean, look at this experience of kindness first in the field. Look at verse 8. I'll read it again. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. When it comes to letting her glean, Boaz doesn't just say, sure, you can stay. No, he goes above and beyond in showing the Lord's kindness to Ruth. He knows the danger of his world. He knows what might happen to her in another field or if she stays on the outskirts of the field instead of close to the workers. He says, stay here, glean here. My workers will protect you. You can even drink my employees' water, which if you're in the Middle East, water's not an easy thing to come by. But Boaz gives it all to her freely. He provides the food. He provides the water. He provides the protection. The Lord's kindness towards Ruth is shown in Boaz's kindness towards Ruth. Maybe I should even say the Lord's grace towards Ruth is shown there. God's unmerited favor. Because look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? Ruth's humble. She doesn't see it as her right to glean. 
in her humility. She's amazed at Boaz's kindness. She's amazed at God's kindness through Boaz. Proud people aren't often amazed by kindness. I mean, proud people expect kindness, whether or not they're, they're giving it to anyone else. I mean, pride sings the song of, I deserve, I deserve, while humility realizes that everything that we have is a gift from God the Father. It comes from his kind hand through the hands of others. And so as she receives Boaz's kindness, she realizes, I don't have any right to this. You, you don't, you're not obligated to be this kind to me. I'm a foreigner, and yet you're treating me like a daughter, and she's amazed. Why have I found favor in your eyes? But, but, but Boaz has heard the whole story. I mean, word gets around in Bethlehem. He knows that she left everything in Moab, her family, her culture, her, her, her religion, to come with her mother-in-law and to care for her, to feed her. More than that, she came to find refuge in Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true living God, and in his people. So, of course, Boaz is going to provide that refuge of God for her. I mean, didn't Jesus say, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Boaz saw it as his duty to provide God's blessing to her. God works his kindness through our kindness. He doesn't just follow the letter of the law and let her stay. He fulfills the heart of the law towards her. That since God has poured out his blessings on Boaz, he now has the privilege to pour out God's blessings on Ruth. That's, that's the logic of the laws of reaping. Uh, in Deuteronomy 24, verses 19 through 22, we read about this. It, it says in God's law, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this. The logic of God's law is that you should care for the poor, the helpless, the oppressed, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Because remember, that was you at one time. You were a slave. You were poor. You were hopeless. You were oppressed in the land of Egypt. And I took care of you and provided for you in that. And now it's your job to do that same thing. You follow after God and you take care of the, the poor, the helpless, the oppressed in your midst. Has God ever rescued you from anything? Perhaps from oppression to sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Because if so, we have an even greater motivation to show God's kindness to others, to the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, all who need our kindness. But I can't help to think, did, did, did Boaz look back at his father's line coming out of Egypt and have motivation to be kind to Ruth? 
but also look at his mother's line? I'm, I'm going to speculate a minute. So if you're someone who dozes off during sermons, do it now. Um, but for the rest of it, do you know who, who Boaz's ancestors were? In, in Matthew 1, we're given this abbreviated genealogy, right? It doesn't hit every single generation, but it hits the high points of Jesus' line. And it says, this is Matthew 1, 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac of Jacob, and Jacob of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez by Zerah and Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron of Ram, and Ram of Aminadab, and an and Aminadab, that's a hard one. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab? Boaz's significant ancestor, I don't know if it's his mom, his great-grandmother, someone farther down the line, but it's Rahab, an outsider to God's people, who feared God and risked everything. She left everything, her family, her home, her God, to come and join with God's covenant people. She forsook everything and converted to worship the one true living God, an unwanted outsider being brought near. And here, her devotion to God is reflected in Ruth's devotion to God. So maybe that helps explain his extraordinary kindness to outsiders. It's deep in his DNA. I, that's just my musing. I, I can't prove that. Maybe it has nothing to do with anything. All the book of Ruth says is that he was the one who gave her kindness in the field. But more than that, he gave her kindness at the table. I mean, look at verse 14. The Lord lavishes Ruth with kindness through Boaz. Eating, no, she feasts with him and his hired workers. She had no right to be at the table, and Boaz says, get up here. Take a plate. Take bread. Take wine. She eats until she's full. She eats roasted grain, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds delicious. It sounds like it has lots of carbs, and that's my kind of diet. She feasts on roasted grain, and she has leftovers. So she gets full. She's like, all right, I got to get back to work. And Boaz says, okay, now that Ruth's gone, employee meeting. When you go out to finish the harvest today, do not pick every single head of grain. Leave sheaves there so that Ruth has stuff to pick. And when you're bundling up your grain, you know, accidentally drop some here and there. Throw it out. When you're tying up the bundles on the cart, Maybe not all the bundles make it on the cart. If there's some accidental sloppiness in my field, I'm not going to reproach you for it, and you shouldn't reproach Ruth for taking advantage of your sloppy work today. You know, if it just happens. He, he commands them, make sure that Ruth is taken care of. And so, so they did. And at the end of the day, she has, uh, what is verse 17, an ephah, of barley. It's about 22 liters, which means absolutely nothing to me. Um, but after it's all processed and, and winnowed, that means she has about 30 pounds of barley she's taking home. Imagine carrying six bags of flour home from Kroger, uh, 92 cups. So my, my sourdough recipe that, that I use takes three and a half cups of flour. So assuming that she's 
you know, following King Arthur, um, that means she's making 25 loaves of bread when she gets home, right? She cleaned up in the field. Uh, just for comparison, a worker in that day, his wages would be about one to two pounds of the grain that he's gathered. Um, Boaz seems generous. Let's say that his worker's getting paid two pounds of grain a day. And so saying that she's gleaned an ephah is meant to show just this vast sacrificial kindness of Boaz. The, the great sacrifice he made. She's walking home with two weeks of wages in a single day. She's just supposed to be able to survive the night until she can do it again. And, and then she comes back tomorrow. But she got paid more than the workers did in two weeks, maybe even a month. And she's told, hey, do this every day until the harvest ends. Maybe that's why back in verse 9, um, he says, have I not told the young men not to touch you? I mean, sexism, racism, those are real threats. But maybe jealousy is playing into the mix as well, right? Maybe a mix of all of these. But it doesn't matter. Boaz pours out his kindness on her, a sacrificial, expensive, costly kindness so that Ruth experiences the Lord's kindness through Boaz's kindness. In, uh, in 1978, uh, to the Future Farmers of America, the, the radio broadcaster Paul Harvey gave his now famous speech, uh, So God Made a Farmer. I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. Dodge Ram used it a couple years ago for their Super Bowl ad. By a couple, I mean like 10, but it feels, you know, time gets abbreviated. I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. It starts, and on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker, so God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work in the fields all day, milk cows again, eat supper, and then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. And he continues until the end. God said, I need someone strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to tame lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink combed pullets, who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk and replenish the seed feeders and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church, someone who would bail the family together with a soft, strong bond of sharing, who would laugh, then sigh, and then reply with smiling eye when his son says he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farm. And on that random day in that random field in Bethlehem, God needed a farmer. Of course, I say needed with all the caveats, right? God doesn't need anything. It's not like he's served by human hands. Uh, but rather in his divine concurrence, remember that term? He chose to pour out his kindness through a farmer, through Boaz. God needed a farmer to have land, to have crops, to be worthy, to be wealthy, to be able to sacrifice for her. So God made Boaz from the line of an idol-worshiping prostitute who he brought in as a daughter of the Most High, giving him a field and employees, making him wealthy, respected, worthy, making him a distant relative of the late Elimelech. Among the other 50 
billion things that God was doing in Boaz's life every step of the way. He was setting it all up so he could come home to his field one day from town and meet Ruth and share grain with an undeserving Moabite widow at great kindness and great sacrifice. God makes all people to serve his purposes, to pour out kindness exactly where God wants his kindness to be at exactly the right time. The pattern of God's universe is sacrificial kindness. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4, 4, and 5. And our pitiful oppression to sin and our enslavement to the devil, Christ became man, he suffered, he died for you, for us, in an act of sacrificial kindness. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8 says, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And by saving you, he's transforming you to be like Boaz. No, to be like the one that Boaz is pointing to, to be like Christ, who pours out his kindness on others. I mean, doesn't Titus 2.14 remind us that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness? and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God wanted to pour out his kindness upon Ruth, so God made a farmer. Why did God make you? Where does he want his kindness to flow through you onto others? Who are those around you in need of God's kindness, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual or relational? Oh, that we would be a church known for pouring out the kindness of God. A church filled with God-saturated men and women like Boaz, like the one that Boaz points us to. That we would excel at costly, loving kindness to all that are in need. Pray that the Lord would show you opportunities to be kind and give you the perception of how you can do it, and that he would make you kind so that you can be employed in those good works. Ruth experienced God's loving kindness through Boaz's loving kindness. But as a result, Naomi experienced it too. So look at this last section here, starting in verse 18. So Ruth comes home. And Naomi must have been expecting a cup or two of barley, assuming that Ruth comes home at all. You know, a little Ziploc baggie of, hey, we won't starve to death tonight. Instead, Ruth comes, she dumps out a five-gallon bucket on the counter, and once that's out of her hand, she can set down the doggy bag from lunch on the table. And the question that we've been asking this whole chapter, will Ruth find favor in the fields? Gets its answer. It gets a pretty obvious answer. Ruth does not find peril. She doesn't find rejection. She finds God's own favor. And in God's kindness, she finds kindness. And now Naomi starts blessing the man that had favor on her. Twice even. Once in verse 19, again in 20. Look. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord 
whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. No one knows how to translate that. Who's his in that verse? Is, is it the Lord's kindness hasn't forsaken the living or the dead, or Boaz's kindness that hasn't forsaken the living or the dead? Not sure it really matters. I think his is great because God worked his kindness through Boaz's kindness. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And this response is astounding to me because we have no reason to think that, that Naomi isn't still in this attitude of, hey, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The last time Naomi talked to us, it was, it was there. Hey, nothing is pleasant about my life. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness. But now, because of Boaz's kindness, her spirit's lifted. By providing physical refreshment, he's provided emotional, even spiritual refreshment to her. It's amazing that the thing in the book of Ruth that flips the switch for, for Naomi from, from focusing only on God's bitter providence to now seeing his kind and pleasant providence is that somebody was kind to her that our kindness can be utterly transformational for others. I'm not saying that's how it always works. There's, there's no promise of be kind and you'll change someone's life. But that's how it worked here for Naomi and Boaz. And as the bitterness, the fog of bitterness clears away, she begins to see things with an accurate perspective. In verse 20, she remembers something about Boaz. He's a close relative of ours a redeemer. He, he's one of the people in our family who would have that, that family responsibility to take care of widows like Naomi or Ruth. And so as she gets back with these five gallons of flour to make 25 loaves of bread just for tonight, she'll do the same tomorrow, there's hope. We had a glimmer of hope in chapter one. It was the beginning of the barley harvest. Now it's starting to take shape, right? There's food. There's job security, at least through the barley and then through the wheat harvest. And there's a redeemer, one who might actually take care of Ruth and Naomi. Things are going well at the end of chapter 2. They'll survive, at, le at least for this harvesting season. And so Ruth and Naomi live together. But, but we're left with this question, right? But what about after the harvest? What about after the barley's gone? Um, what happens when there's no more food to glean? Will the Lord continue to be kind, or will they go back to emptiness? But we won't get ahead of ourselves. I'll leave next sermon for next week. Um, let me just close here. I'm, I am confident that it was a scary thing for Ruth and Naomi to return to Bethlehem, to return home. And last week, I gave this application. I gave this call of wherever you've been wandering from God's blessing, or if you've never been part of God's blessing before, come back home. God welcomes you back into his people. And that's a scary thing, too. Partially because we don't know what we'll find at home. But God is a God of kindness. And his people, though, though we never fully live up to our, our calling, we're called to be a people of kindness as well. 
So if you're looking for kindness, we look among God's people for it. We find it in the church. And if you're part of God's people, that means we have a heavy and a glorious call on our lives to share God's kindness with others. Ruth survived because she found kindness in God's people acting like God's people. She more than survived. She was blessed beyond anything she could imagine. Is that what people coming back from the far country into our church will find? Is kindness and blessing? Is that what they'll find when they enter your house? I hope by the grace of God that the answer is yes. But there's room for growth. I mean, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, kindness, isn't it? That if we have the Spirit of God living within us, he's going to make us kind like Christ is. Have you found God's kindness? Because if, it, if you have, that's where we start to grow in our kindness towards others. So let's rejoice in the kindness of God and pass it on as God works his kindness.